Psalm 119, a study we've called Rooted, and we're ready for our third lesson. Week number one, we talked about being joyously rooted, and what does it mean to have joy, and how do we have it? Last week, we talked about having deep roots. Again, a focus on uh, the Word of God as being the source of all the things that bring us joy and peace and so on. And this week, I want to talk about... um, being rooted, settled in our roots, settled in our roots. I was trying to think of an illustration to get us going today, and I, I thought of one that makes you uh, think a little bit about how silly I am. But So the very first year of Stony Brook, I wanted the kids to have a uh, away-from-school experience. I wanted them to go on a spring trip, and we only had 38 kids at the time. But I figured, you know what, we can, we can do 38 kids. So I found a campground outside of Hemet somewhere. It was not the best campground. Uh, it was not the best area. It was a little hot, a little uncomfortable. But nonetheless, we found it. And it had on the other side of the street a, um, a farm. There used to be lots of farms out there. And they actually milked cows. So we built the whole, uh, the whole outdoor ed experience around cows and farms and milking and all whatever. But, but uh, what, the night that we were out there, we only spent one night out there, but the night we were out there, we were playing a hide-and-seek, a version of hide-and-seek. And so uh, the kids wanted me to hide, and I thought, that's it, man, I'm going to hide. They're not going to find me no matter what. So I scoured the grounds during the day, and I found a, an old creek bed that ran down through the middle of the camp. And, the, and the, uh, the creek bed didn't have any water in it, of course, hadn't, I don't know how long. But trees were still growing out of it, and the trees had, you know, a, a mishmash of, of roots. And I figured out a place where I can crawl. I could crawl up underneath those roots and get completely hidden up underneath. And that's what I did. As soon as it was time to go hide, man, I made a beeline for that, that particular washed-out uh, creek bed. I crawled up underneath those roots. I got up really up and high, tucked myself all in. Nothing was showing. And the game started. And you could hear the kids running around with the flashlights and looking and screaming. And they found the first person. They found the second person. They found the third person. The only one they hadn't found was me. And this went on and on and on. And, and finally, Dennis Bach, the, the guy that was with me at the time running the school, finally said, Sherry, wherever you are, get out. And so I crawled out from underneath that rooted system. And yay, I won. Well, not exactly. The next day, I'm walking along with a guy who runs the camp. And uh, we're talking about, you know, the ecosystem out there and the animals that are out there and whatever, whatever. He says, our biggest problem is rattlesnakes. Oh, yeah, that's a a problem. And we stopped right adjacent to the washed-out creek bed where the tree was with the root system that I'd crawled completely under and sat there for an hour and a half. And while we're standing there, he goes, you know, this is an example. And you hear, yes, yes, there was a rattler, and that was his home. And where had I been the night before for 45 minutes? Tucked right in there, tight. So not so smart. I get it. But rooted, that's our discussion today. Rooted in God's word. We're in Psalm 119. We found some interesting things about Psalm 119. Not being rooted like I was up underneath a dumb tree, but rooted in God's word. And this particular psalm is written in an acrostic style. Remember, every, every uh, eight stanzas, uh, it uh, starts with the letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And then within that stanza, every, every verse 
starts with that letter too. And we're going to skip Gimel and go right to Daleth. It's not that I don't like Gimel, but I can't do all 22 of the lessons. And so I wanted to talk about something in Daleth. So we're going to sneak down to verse 25, the D section, if you will. What's interesting about this is how David starts this particular section. He says, I am laid low in the dust. Preserve my life according to your word. I gave an account of my ways and you answered me. Teach me your decrees. He goes on to say, cause me to understand the way of your precepts that I may meditate on your wonderful deeds. My soul is weary with sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Keep me from deceitful ways. Be gracious to me and teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I've set my heart on your laws. I hold fast to your statutes, Lord. Do not let me be put to shame. I run in the path of your commands, for you have broadened my understanding. What did I find in this, in this section? What, what struck me in Daleth? What was, what was the theme that I felt like David was trying to get across to me? I think what he's trying to say is there is an answer in God's word for our discouragement. Or, or maybe more than discouragement, some are suffering from, from maybe real-life depression. When the downside of life occurs, is there something that, that we can draw from, that we can run to, a shadow we can hide under, that will feed our souls and speak to that discouragement or that depression? First off, the word discouragement, the dis, the D-I-S word in front, it means the opposite. So whatever you put in front of a word, or whatever word you put D-I-S in front of, it means the opposite of that. So to be encouraged, we'd throw D-I-S in front and it would become to be discouraged, to the opposite of having courage. Really, a person without encouragement, a person who is discouraged, is a person who's lost momentum. The ability to, to be able to move forward in life has been stolen from them. And it's a very common condition. Uh, it's common for men. It's common for women. Women probably talk about it a little bit more. But it is common uh, in, in the guys as well. It's such a nasty and common condition that, that I, that I kind of smiled when I read John 14, 1 the other day. The night before Jesus died and he was telling his disciples that he was going to heaven, there was certainly a reaction of discouragement. And, and he starts off his, his answer to that discouragement with, let not your heart be troubled. Don't, don't, don't allow yourself to be discouraged. And here we have in the, in the Dolliff section of 119, very definitely signs of serious discouragement. Verse 25, I'm laid low in the dust. In verse 28, my soul is weary with sorrow. Verse 32, you've set my heart free, which implies it wasn't. That maybe the day before or the week before, it was not free. It was entangled. There was a sense of bondage to discouragement. Now, where does discouragement or disappointment or its worst cousin, absolute uh, depression, where does that all come from? In the human experience, where, where, does, where does those events take place? What what, what precipitates our being discouraged or depressed? Well, I found several in God's Word, and I want to share them with you today. And then I want to talk about what do we do when we find ourselves there. The first place or the first example out of Scripture where, where we might find a source that affects us, that causes discouragement or, or, or even serious depression, 
believe it or not, is our own family or those closest to us. The very people that are, that are supposed to be the ones that build us up and encourage and, and make us uh, you know, engage more freely in life are often the very ones that open the little petcock. You don't know this, but on your radiator you have a little valve. It's called a petcock. My father taught me when I was a kid. Anyway, if you open that up, your radiator drains. Well, we all have a little petcock, and oftentimes our kids or those closest to us know where those are. They just, they just know exactly where they are. And they can reach up and turn that little knob, and then it all just runs out. Family and friends can be a source of serious discouragement and, and even depression. An example is, is Job in the Old Testament. The book of Job may have been the very first book in the Bible to ever be written. We don't know for sure. But because of the themes that are in there and the themes that are not in there, we think it might have been the very first one. And if it is, it's an amazing book. If you've not spent time in the book of Job, I recommend you sit down this afternoon and read it. It is phenomenal. The very first time I read it, I went, oh, a mouthful of straw. What is this all about? But if you take a little bit of time, slow down a little bit, maybe read a a quick overview of it before you start to read it, the book is going to come alive. And here's what happens. A very godly man has some terrible things happen to him. And then his family and his friends react to those terrible things that happen. And as a matter of fact, I think Job reacts worse to them than he does the original stuff. You know, his wife at the very beginning... Turn to, turn to Job and look at verse uh, chapter 2. So you're in Psalms. Just go back one book. It'll be easy on you. Job chapter 2. And, and look at how his wife, his nearest and dearest, the one who ought to be his eternal encouragement and support. Chapter 2. Um, so the Bible says that in verse 7, Satan's gone out and he's afflicted Job with painful sores. And Job took a piece of broken pottery and is scraping himself. All kinds of other very bad things have happened. His children have been killed and so on. And in verse number 9, his wife says this. Honey, I'm so sorry. Let me encourage you. Let me support you. Let's, let's get on our face before God together. Let's meet this with spiritual fervor. What does she say? Those of you know that your Bible are grinning at me because that's not what she says. She says, are you still trying to maintain your integrity? And here's her classic piece of advice. Curse God and die. Why, thank you, honey. That is just so uplifting. Essentially, she says, why are you bothering? God's mean. He's done these horrible things to you. You should curse him and just go ahead and die. It's all over for the home team. We make fun of her, and even as we go into the rest of the chapters, when his friends show up, they they essentially say similar things. They say, well, you know, you had it coming. Where, Where does discouragement often come as a root? It's the reaction of our family to things that are going on around us. As I look out among you, I know some family situations, and I know that that's the source of your discouragement. And, and even to the point of, of, of moving past just being discouraged and maybe to the point of some serious depression. Because those are wounds that really, really hurt. When your spouse is not there for you, when your children are not there for you, when your dearest friend turns on you and says, well, you had it coming. Those are, those are wounds that are pretty tough to take. If we're not settled and deeply rooted into God's word, those are, those are going to hurt and hurt bad. 
Another source of discouragement is that just the circumstances of life. Now, I don't know about you, but I did not handle COVID. I'm not handling current continuous tense. I'm not handling COVID very well. A, like many of you, and I don't like to be told what to do. What do you mean you're going to tell me what to do? I'm the CEO of the universe, or at least I'm applying for the job. You know, I, I got a good idea, probably a better idea than you got. I don't care who you are. So to have, have someone come along and tell me what to do, and then start to restrict my ability to get to those relationships that, that matter so much, and then take away my ability to travel. Oh my, now you've gone deep. I, I, lack of activity. We were talking this morning about how crammed my schedule is right now. I whined when there was nothing on it, and now I'm whining because it's so crammed. I, I did not respond exceptionally well uh, to all of the circumstances associated with our pandemic. Circumstances of life can drain us, can steal our energy, can, can get us off track. A classic illustration of that is, is the prophet Elijah. We don't have time to study it right now, but, but trust me, it's in the book. And I gave you the passage in 1 Kings chapter 19. Elijah is a prophet and he is going to have the highest of moments as a man of God. He is going to, if you remember the story, he's pitted against the the prophets of Baal. And and they want to show that their gods are top, and he wants to show that Yahweh is, in fact, almighty God. And so they have a showdown. And the showdown has to do with calling down fire from heaven. You remember the story. They do their thing. He he watches them all day long do their gyrastecutions, and nothing happens. No fire. And in in sarcasm, he pours water around his to make sure it looks really ridiculous. And and he he just waits and waits. And then, of course, God calls down fire. The reaction of the prophets, the false prophets, the reaction of the king and the queen is is horrible. They're ready to kill him. And instead of standing there in that high moment of life circumstances, it turns on a dime. And the Bible tells us he takes off running. He not only takes off running, he's whining and crying and, and, and complaining. And he gets to the other side of the desert and essentially says to God, I'm the only one. Nobody else is serving you, just me. And look what you had happen. They're after me. They're going to kill me. You ever been there? Uh, yeah, I have. Life circumstances turn what ought to be a high moment turns into a very low moment. And instead of handling it by rooting ourselves in God's word, we respond to the circumstances. What's another source of discouragement or depression? Well, I would say physical issues are. When there's a nagging, ongoing, it doesn't go away kind of thing, it drains us. For many years of my life, I suffered with migraines. I mean, like serious, knock you down, can't get up kind of migraines. And, and the worst part of it was my emotional life associated with it. It wasn't even the pain associated with the, with the migraine. It was all the stuff that went with it. Paul had a series of, of situations like that. He calls it his thorn in his side. And if you went to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12 and other places, he talks that, that he prayed several different times for God to remove that thorn in his flesh because it was dragging him down. It was draining him. And God's answer was not to heal it, but to give him the encouragement, a sense of being rooted in God's purpose, in God's word, so much so that he, then he responds and says, I guess I need to press on. I press on towards the goal. I don't let this physical thing drag me completely down. I've had four very close friends die from 
from breast cancer or one form of cancer or another. And I've mentioned to you before, at different times in all of their lives, as they struggled towards the end of their life, one way or another, all four of them looked at me and said, I would never have chosen this, but I also would never want it to not have been here. It has made a difference in my life and my family's life. Essentially echoing Paul saying, I press on. So physical things will drain us. What about... Um, Others, the, the performance of others. Those of you that, that put your expectation in your children, my child is going to be the next greatest whatever. And somehow they're not that next greatest. In fact, you get a phone call from the school saying they're the other thing. <laughs> what? My perfect child did a normal thing that kids do? Yes, he or she did. We're disappointed sometimes in the performance of people around us. We put each other up on pedestals. Why are we so shocked when a spiritual leader falls? Because we had him up, up high where he shouldn't have been. He or she is no different than you, like passions, like issues. Instead of putting them on, pa on pedestals, we should be praying for them. We should be asking God to, to protect them and their family and their life. But the performance of others can discourage us. Ezra, as a leader, he wanted to come back to the, to the promised land after being in, in exile. And he led the people. And, and he was the spiritual leader. And he was so excited to, to get the temple worship going again and, and whatever. And the people initially were, yes, let's work. Let's get her done. And then suddenly they got tired of it. And the Bible says for about 15 years they just said, oh, well. And if you, don't, if you don't know this book, you should study the book of Haggai. Haggai comes along and says, wait a minute, what is the deal? As a prophet of God, he says, you know what, guys? Your houses all look great, but the house of God is unfinished. Ezra had a broken heart over that. The performance of other people, they will disappoint us. They will cause us discouragement. Another one that, that, that often drains me is my discouragement with myself. My, 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 my own recognition of my own uh, foibles, my own mistakes, my own, my own guilt or shame associated with a choice or an attitude or an action. And that, that whole issue of being so disappointed. Gee, Sherry, you should be further along than this. How come you, why did you, how come you didn't exercise the right kind of self discipline there or, or, or kindness there. Why did you just so flippantly uh, so this, so that? And that discouragement with myself can be a, a huge, huge and serious drainer. How did Peter react after he denied the Lord and the Lord turned and looked at him? The Bible says he went out and wept bitterly. He was so discouraged, yes, depressed, because of his own performance. Just the night before, he told Jesus, everybody else leaves you, not me, man. I'm going to be the last one there. And so the next morning, the next day, Peter denied him, not once, not twice, but three times. And you're no different than Peter, nor I any different. We disappoint ourselves. And when that occurs, we spend some time maybe discouraged, lacking energy, spiritual energy is dissipated. And last but not least that I might suggest to you as a source of our discouragement, that is our disappointment with God. 
You say, oh, wait a minute, Sherry, we could never be disappointed with God. Really? You never been disappointed with God? You never felt like he didn't show up at the right time? You never felt like he left you out or left you down or didn't respond in the way you thought he could or should? I certainly have. Now, not so much to curse God and roll over and die like Job's wife wanted him to do. But I certainly have been disappointed. Lord, where are you? I've done this or that. Your people have done this or that. A community effort has gotten together and we've done this or that. And you then this. What's the deal? Jeremiah, a prophet in the Old Testament, is such an encouragement to me. Only because he's, 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 he's down and out all the time. I mean, he was arrested. He was thrown into a well. He was put in stocks in the middle of the town square. God specifically said, you may not marry and you may not have children. God put him through a ringer backwards. And yet, there are, there are passages over and over and over again where he honestly expresses his disappointment. The book of Lamentations. There's two books by Jeremiah. The book called Jeremiah and the book Lamentations. And Lamentation just means bawly. The guy who cried a lot. And if you want to see somebody crying at God, disappointed at his performance, look at Lamentations chapter 3. And yet Jeremiah is such an encourager. He might get knocked down, but he knew he wasn't out. He might see God in a different way than he wanted to see him, but he knows he's there. Is it possible that discouragement can be a blessing in disguise? I think there are at least two things that that discouragement can bring us that we might not think about. The first is it can act like a warning light. Now, uh, I love cars that talk to you. I, I need a car that comes on and says, Sherry, I'm really not kidding. You got about another block and a half. You're gonna run out of gas. You're an idiot, pull over now. I need one of those. Because the little light is totally ignored. The little warning here about coming around, yeah, right. And then it changes color in my car. I don't care what color you are. Then I look down to see just how far below E it is, the little line. But I need need idiot proof. I need need conversation. I think discouragement, uh, disappointment, even depression in some of its forms can be a, a kind of a blessing in that it's a warning light. It's a way to say to us, hey, your focus is on the wrong things. You've turned your light so it's inward. You know how on our phones we can take pictures out this way or we click the button and it takes a picture of us? When we're full of discouragement, when we're full of of disappointment and even depression, we click that button and that, that camera is looking right at us full time. That's it. We're not looking out. We're not considering others. We're not looking at our family or our ministries or opportunities to grow and develop. We are totally consumed with self. And, and that kind of discouragement can be a warning light. Ding, 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 ding. Hey, change your focus. Change your focus. Warning light. I also think it can be a kind of a refining tool. Um, in in, in uh, Zechariah and again in Isaiah, the Bible talks about, See, I have refined you, though not as silver, I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. I let these things occur so we can see what you're made of. So I can check, it, I can check you out and see if I can trust you with this next more, more significant thing. 
If I can't trust you with this, one of the Old Testament prophets says, hey, if you can't run with, with uh, you know, the, the slowpokes, how are you going to run with the horses? If you, if you can't handle this, how are you going to handle that? I think, I think sometimes it's a, it's a refining tool, a getting us ready, shoring us up for something else. If you've never had serious pain in your life and suddenly you do, you are now in a position to encourage and support others who are going to go through that. Gals that have been through breast cancer specifically, for an example, are incredible encouragers to the gals that find out they've got a lump. You're in a position no one else is in a position. You can say, I know what that feels like. I know, I know what it's like the, the, the days between the tests. I know what it's like when you haven't heard yet about the margins. I know, I know, I know. I think the refining fire sometimes of discouragement sets us up with strength and encouragement for whatever might be next. So how do we address, how do we address real discouragement? Well, our, our, our Dolph section in Psalm 119 spells it out. I put it in your notes, but if, you, if you're opening, if you have your Bible to open to 119, look at verse 26. He says, teach me your decrees. I'm not, I'm, not a, I'm not a PhD candidate yet, Lord, in the area of affliction. I need some teaching. Teach me. Verse 27. Let me understand the teaching of your precepts. So don't, don't just teach me, but then stick around and interpret it for me. Verse 28. Strengthen me according to your word. Look, it's one thing to have a friend call you up and, and bring you over a cup of tea and you spend an hour together and you're, you're encouraged. That is great. But, but, it, but it dissipates soon. The tea goes cool. She goes home. Your situation remains. What you need is sustenance that lasts. And that's God's word. That's why we're making such a big deal in this whole study about God's word. If this is not an active ingredient in your life. And last week I, I, I paralleled it, or, or maybe I did it in the evening session, I can't remember, to, to the phone. Remember we talked about how this is always in our pockets. It's very much a part of our life. We wouldn't imagine even going to the restroom without it. Well, God's word needs to be so much more than that. Strengthen me according to your word when I'm discouraged. Verse 29, be gracious to me through your law. Let me taste the sweetness. Let me be encouraged. Let me, let me have another thought other than the ones that I'm having as I'm consumed with whatever it is that's got me down. Verse 30, I have set my heart on your laws. I am, I am I'm focused. I'm not just casually Sunday morning, yep, grab your Bible. Where was it? Oh, blow the dust off. Here we go. I'm consumed with it. I'm in it every day. I'm in it several times a day. I'm listening to it in the car. I'm memorizing and I'm meditating and I'm sharing it with friends. I have some dear friends that I got to travel with this summer. And uh, we went up to Yellowstone. If you follow me on Facebook, you, you knew that there were some great fun elements to that, to that trip. We had a trophy and we played games every day. And whoever won the games that day got to take the trophy home to their, to their RV. And at the end, they got to keep the trophy I did not keep the trophy. So we're going away again in a couple of weeks. And I said, bring the trophy out. Bring the trophy out. Round two. Maybe I will bring the trophy home at least once. Wouldn't that be nice? My point being is on that trip, we had a lot of fun. But every single day, we were intentionally in God's word together. 
And several times during the day, while we were driving along, we were quoting scripture. We picked scripture. Each, each one of us picked different ones, and we were teaching the other one scripture. It was a natural and normal thing. We had coffee and laughed. We played games and laughed. We saw animals and laughed. We read God's word and laughed. We memorized God's word. We fed each other from it. It was a natural part of life. That's what he's saying. I have set my heart in your laws. Verse 31, I hold fast to your statutes. When I know that I'm supposed to do something, I do it. When I know I'm supposed to stop doing something, I stop doing it. If I were to ask you to turn your papers over and take a pen and write a little, you know, a line down the middle and on the left-hand side write down all the things that you should start doing. You already know it. You've been in God's word enough. You know these are the things you should be doing. Loving your husband, patience with your children, and a thousand other things. And if I said on the other side, here, I want you to just jot down all the things you know you should stop. You already know what they are. You would write them down. I need a It's not like we don't know. He says, help me to hold fast. Help me to do it. And in verse 31, he says, and I run in the path of your commands. That's the route I take. I'm, I'm living my life according to this. This is my GPS. Not here. Here. This is my GPS. This is getting me true north. This is telling me how to live life. This is telling me how to deal with my discouragements, my depressions, those things that, that knock me down. There was, a, there was a, a guy in the 1800s. This is back when they used to get mail order brides. He came west and he ended up with about 300 acres of land, somewhere I think in Nebraska. And uh, after he got the 300 acres, he got a, you know, a well-run uh, farm going. He built a house. And then he bought himself two or 300 head of cattle. And he had you know, wonderful uh, animals there. And so finally he thought he was to a place in life where, where maybe he could get himself a mate. And so he placed an ad in a newspaper, in the, in the newspapers in New York City. And uh, the ad said this. Let me read you the ad. It says, um, I'm looking for a good woman, um, uh, uh, someone who's willing to be a pen pal. And, oh, by the way, marriage is possible for the right woman. So a lady named Molly started, started writing them, and they got to be pen pals, and I don't know exactly how long they wrote, but for a while. And finally she agreed that, yep, she'd come west and meet him with the potential of marriage. So um, uh, he, uh, he determined what day she'd come in on the train station. She came in, uh, uh, the train came in, and it unloaded, and for whatever reason there were 10, 15, 20 women, young women, that unloaded at the same time. And the little story that I read said he, he, he carefully analyzed each one of the ladies. He didn't have a picture of her. And he went, mm, 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 And finally walked right up to her and said, Hi, Molly, my name is Ben. And later she said, How did you know it was me? And he said, Well, because we've been writing. And I've been reading. And I've been thinking about every one of your words. And I got to know something about your character, what kind of things you were like, what, what kind of a countenance you, you probably had, what kind of a, a character you emanated as you walked around. And I put all that together and I picked you out. Look, guys, when we're in God's word, when we're in here not just, again, Sunday mornings, go ahead, preacher, I'm now listening, but that this book is emanating in and out of us, then we're in a position to know something about God and bring that to bear on the issues of our life. There's something to lean on, something to draw from, something we know because we've been in it. So here's some practical steps if you find yourself with some discouragement right now. Number one, be honest with yourself. Don't act like it in there. Be honest. 
If you've got an issue going, family, friends, a health situation, something that's frustrating you, political issues, pandemic issues, racial tensions in our country, whatever it is, be honest with yourself. What exactly is the problem? Are, are they the problem? Are you the problem? What exactly is the problem? When, when, when Elijah uh, found himself, or excuse me, Elisha found himself in a problem in, in uh, 1 Kings 6, some, some preacher, uh, some guys in a preaching ministry, uh, a community, uh, they were building another house, another dormitory for their, for their seminary or Bible college. And, and they were out chopping down uh, wood. And the axe head that they were using to chop down the wood came off of the axe itself and, and fell into the, ri- to, to the river. And, the, and the, one of the guys comes over and goes, oh, my goodness, this is bad. The axe head is in the river. I can't see it. I can't retrieve it. And, and the head, the actual metal part was borrowed. It wasn't even mine. And, and Elisha in that story, it's a fascinating, quick little story in, uh, in, uh, in, in Kings 6. He walks over, in, in 2 Kings 6, rather, he walks over and he goes, show me exactly where you lost it. And I love that because the guy goes, well, um, let's see, I was standing uh, right, right here and I was chopping and so it, it would be like right there. He identified exactly. He, he, he wasn't messing around with, well, I don't know, it could have been, maybe. He points to it, right? That's where I lost it. And in the miracle of the rest of the story, God allows Elisha to make that axe head swim. It floats to the top. And the guy leans over, picks it up, and goes on about his business. The, the key to that story is the identification of where you lost it. So be honest with yourself. Take, take some, some time to identify what is the real problem. If, if, if it's you and someone else, is it your problem or their problem? Now, I realize that it's always a two-way street, a little bit. But if there's great discouragement and depression in your relationships, try the best you can to ferret it through. What's the real problem here? If there's a strain in your marriage, don't just say, well, he never cleans up for himself. He's not going to. Let's just acknowledge it. The socks are going to be thrown there. Forget it. Get over the socks. But what is the real problem? The real problem is, is you're so, both of you are so focused on maybe other things, you're not focused on each other. So solve that problem. Don't worry about the socks problem. So, so you get honest with yourself and you take careful inventory. Is this, a, is this a physical thing? Maybe. Maybe it's time to have a checkup. That's maybe some blood work would be appropriate. Maybe there's something going on as a woman in your body that's got you messed up emotionally. Check that off. When, when parents would come to me here at Stony Brook with, with situations with kids, that's always the first place I'd go. When was the last time they had a checkup? Let, let, them, let them make certain that the pituitary gland is working properly. Let's make sure all those glands are doing their gland thing before we move on to something else. But in inventory, what about emotionally? Is this an emotional problem? Is it a season of life? Is it, is it a physiological problem? Is it a spiritual problem? It might be emotional or it might be spiritual. There might be some honoriness in you, some disappointing uh, discipline that might be required. And that's why it's, you know, you're, you're fighting it. Identify. Take an inventory. And then adjust your thinking about the problem. This is where I think it becomes very practical. Um, how many of you have uh, glasses that have uh, you know, the bifocal thing? 
So on the top, it's for looking outside, and down here at the bottom, it's for looking right here. Yeah, lots of us. And the rest of you that don't have it, it's coming. <laughs> so when I had uh, cataract surgery, the guy said, oh, we can cure everything. And I said, great, because the first time in my life I was going to be without glasses. And he said, oh, everything but reading on computers and books and things. Oh, well, that's all I do all day long. So the truth of the matter is, though, my glasses, these very glasses that I'm putting on my nose right now, if I look out on the top, perfect. Everything's fine. It's kind of clear out there. There's almost no prescription. But down here in this bottom part, yeah, I need that. Otherwise, I am not going to be able to read this. I need a certain kind of glasses to look far, and I need a certain kind of glasses to look down. Now, I could wear two pair of glasses, or I could wear bifocals, or in some cases, trifocals, right? I think spiritually, we need a set of, bi of bifocals. We need to adjust our perspective. Some of the time, we need to be thinking about right here, right now, this stuff. Yes, we do. We have to deal with it. Whether it's a health issue, it's a family issue, it's a spiritual issue. Yeah, there's stuff right in front of us. We've got to deal with it. But if that's all we think about, we're going to go crazy. So we've got to look our heads up and look at the top part out of our glasses, adjusting our perspective, not just so focused on the nasty now and now, but to start to think about eternity. It's not always going to be like this. Those of you that have a, a 14, 15, 16, 17-year-old girl, good news, they grow up. She's turning 31 next week. Can you believe? When she was 15, I was convinced neither one of us were going to live another year. And here we are, what, 16 years later or so? The, the, the perspective on whatever it is that's causing such discouragement, you need to, yeah, deal with it. But also tilt your head up a little. There's eternity coming. Well, you don't understand. You've got so much pain. I get it. We can sit and talk about pains if you want to. I've got a list. But the truth of the matter is, within 20, 30 years, I'm not going to have any more pain. And I'm going to have an entire eternity in painless life. So what am I going to spend all my time on? This right now or thinking about eternity? So the bifocals help us do both. Adjust your perspective. If you're totally focused on the nasty now and now, lift your head up a little bit. Or if you're, you know, pie in the sky and not dealing with now and now, just drop it down a little bit. But use the, the perspective that God has given us. And lastly, I want to talk about pressing in. Pressing in. Or not lastly, I guess next to, next to the third to last. Pressing in, Nehemiah, when he got back to work on the, on the wall, when he was building the wall in the tabernacle, or building the wall around the temple, he got word that there were some people that were going to be in opposition to him. And his response was, yeah, okay, great. So you put a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other hand and keep going. His point was, we've got a job to do and we're not going to stop. When discouragement starts to envelop you to the point where you're just... There's no energy. You're not moving forward at all. You have, to, you have to just gut it up. At some point, you're just going to have to take a long look at the person in the mirror and say, all right, I need a trowel and a sword. I got to keep going. I have responsibilities. I have relationships. I have things that God has wanted out of my life. He has given me life. <sighs> I'm still breathing. Look at that. There's something I'm supposed to do with that. Press on. Have a fresh encounter with God's Word. A fresh encounter. 
So I, I'm going to suggest to all of you that you have some sort of a systematic Bible reading plan. And there are tons of them out there. And I happened to go on, um, on UVerse. That was one that I looked at. UVerse that's so you know, prevalent on all of our devices has, I don't know, 50 kinds of reading plans as to whether you want to do it in the morning or the afternoon, whether you want to get through the whole Bible in one year, you want to get through just the New Testament in one year, you want to have a little sampling of Old Testament and New Testament, you want to camp in the book of Psalms. It has a variety of reading plans. Go look at UVerse, choose a reading plan. They'll even plunk it up in your face. So when you grab your phone in the morning, the very first thing you're going to see is, is part of God's Word. And get a fresh encounter. Or I put another uh, website in your, in your notes. They have uh, the, the um, Ligonier uh, organization. They have a whole host. They'll ask you a bunch of questions. You want this, you want that, you want this. How far along are you in your walk? Blah, 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 blah. And they will match you up with a reading plan that will give you a fresh encounter with God's word. Because without it, you're just going to sit there like a gerbil on that wheel and keep dealing with the discouragement that's part of your life. Trust the Lord to accomplish his will. I put a bunch of verses down for you just to be reminded. Psalm 34, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He's close. He's not far. He didn't drop you off at school and say, sorry, you're going to have a bad day, but go. No, 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 no. He's sitting in your backpack. God is close to the brokenhearted. Psalm 147, verse number 3 says, He heals the brokenhearted. It doesn't say He took away everything that made Him discouraged. It says He heals the brokenhearted. The stuff might go on, but your, your capacity to deal with it and live through it and keep moving and, and, and keep moving forward, He's going to provide that energy. Because he says in Isaiah 41.10, I am with you. I will uphold you by my right hand. There's a, a thing on Facebook every now and then it comes up of, of dads doing dumb things with kids that turn out good. And, and one of my favorites is a whole series of little videos where we would have set up all kinds of elaborate systems to save the children from the situation. Dads just react. And there's a, you know, there's a kid falling off of, I don't know, he's climbed up a dresser. And the dad's doing something over here and you see him just reach out with his hand and he grabs the kid by, you know, a handful of diapers and he's got the kid. Or they're in the pool and the kids are doing something strange and he got them, set them down. Or something else happens. There's picture after picture, video, video after God, or after these dads, just boom. And I always think of those videos when I see this verse. I will uphold you with my right hand. Yeah, boom. All right, there, I got you. All right, great. Yeah, whoop. There you go. All right, get your feet back down. All right, got you. Ooh, got you. Got you there. And then Psalm 42, verse 6. I will turn the darkness into light. Not necessarily make the whole thing go away. That which caused the discouragement and the depression and the, and the disappointment. Maybe that just has a life of its own. But what he will do is he will take that darkness that's invaded your soul and he'll reach over it and turn the light on. It's kind of like those lights on our, on our house where we drive in and it just plunks on. at magico because your car comes in. It, you know, it's a, it's a uh, what you call it, light. God's very much like that. If you turn to him, if you use his word as the source of your encouragement, the light comes on. It may still be heavy, there may still be issues to deal with, but the light comes on. 
So our premise today was to be settled in our roots, to find in God's Word that which we need to address our discouragement. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that Daleth will be an example to my friends, that we will have a fresh encounter in your Word, that we'll tuck ourselves under the roots of your Word, that you'll save us from the dumb rattlesnakes of our stupidity, and encourage our hearts when we are discouraged. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.